Hey, it's, uh, it's great to be with you all again. I think I was here about a year and a half ago preaching, and so it's good to be back with you. And uh, I am deeply grateful for this church. I'm grateful for Ryan and his friendship and uh, for the partnership that we share in the gospel. And uh, a couple years ago, uh, when I first landed in Albuquerque, it's actually three years ago now, um, I spent the first couple weeks uh, visiting a couple churches in our city. And uh, I remember after visiting a couple churches, I, I was talking to one of our elders, and I said, oh, I was visiting, you know, this church this week. And, and he said, oh, checking out some of our competition, are you? You know? And I just said, no, man. I said, we are on the same team. You know, those aren't our competitors. And uh, I just want you all to know that I'm grateful that we are together on the same team seeking to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to this city. Um, I live up the street uh, in the North Valley, and every Sunday morning I drive by Desert Springs Church, and I often pray for you all uh, as I'm driving. And I pray for Ryan that the Spirit of God would empower him to speak the Word of God boldly um, here. And so I'm just thankful for you all, and I want you to know that. Um, So if you have a Bible, open with me to Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, and uh, tonight I want to talk to you about the cross of Jesus Christ, and uh, Ryan, when he contacted me this week, he said, hey, can you preach something about the cross, the gospel, the blood, and I thought, I don't know, can I, you know, (laughs) this is like the topic, right, and uh, so we're going to be talking tonight about the cross of Jesus Christ from Colossians chapter 2. And uh, what the New Testament authors oftentimes do when they're talking to us about the cross is they'll take the event of the crucifixion and then they will surround it with metaphors and images in order to help us gain an understanding of the significance and the meaning of the crucifixion. And that's what Paul is doing here in Colossians chapter 2. He wants to ground this church in the gospel of Christ. He wants to ground them in a strong and a rich and a vibrant theology of the cross. And so what he does in chapter 2 and verses 8 down to verse 15 is he provides for them three metaphors or three images to help them understand the significance and the meaning of the cross. First, he talks about the cross as circumcision, interestingly. Uh, Second, he draws an image from the law court. And then finally, he draws an image from the battlefield. And so what we want to do tonight is we want to look at the second of these three images that Paul highlights in uh, verses 13 down to verse 14. And it's an image drawn from the law courts. Now let me just give a little warning as we begin tonight. Um, The temptation as you begin to sort of listen to the sermon tonight as you look at this text might be to think that this would be a great evangelistic sermon. And you might, you might be listening and go, you know, did, did the wires get crossed? Did Ryan forget to tell him that this is a, a communion service? You know, primarily believers are here tonight. Um, but I want you to know that Paul is writing this text about the cross to Christians. And his deep desire is that this church would grow deeper in their understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ. So that they, so that we might draw our life and our vitality From the cross. And so I don't care if you've been a Christian for two years or 10 years or 20 years or whatever, um, this message is for you tonight. And so let's look together at what Paul says in uh, these verses. Primarily, we're looking at verse 14, but let's begin by reading in verse 13 just to kind of put it in context. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. 
God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses. How? He says, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He speaks in our text about a record of debt. Did you see it there in verse 14? He said he has canceled this record of debt. Now, in the Jewish world of Paul's day, uh, it was common for people to believe the quite terrifying idea, actually, that there was a heavenly book where all of our wicked, evil deeds were being stored. I mean, think about this. Every wicked thought, every idle word, every stupid and selfish and wicked thing that you've ever done was recorded in this heavenly book in order and with a view of, at the end of time, this book being brought out and these deeds being opened. That's a terrifying thought, isn't it? I mean, just stop and think about this for a minute. Imagine if I had a flash drive in my hand. And on this flash drive was stored every idle word you uttered on the freeway, every perverted and adulterous thought that's ever gone on in your imagination, every selfish motive in your heart, every self-righteous attitude, every deed done for self, every destructive and distorted use of food and sex and beer or whatever, everything was stored upon that flash drive. And then at the end of time, that information was downloaded on a computer, and then the screen was brought up, and it was all brought before all to see. That's terrifying, isn't it? I mean, could you imagine? Well, this is not a fiction. It actually attests to a reality. The reality that God knows all, he sees all, And God will hold us responsible for all of the ways in which we have wreaked havoc in his good creation. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 12, puts it like this. Listen to this text. And I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and the dead were judged according to what was written in the book, according to what they had done. That's a pretty terrifying passage, isn't it? Well, someone says, well, you know, that's one of the things I don't like about Christianity, is you people are resorting to scare tactics. I mean, this is kind of like the reason why parents teach their kids about Santa Claus, you know, and why do parents teach their kids about Santa? Well, someone says, well, it's to stir their wonder and curiosity. Well, yeah, but look, it's a tool of manipulation and control, isn't it? Because, you know, it's November and Johnny's being naughty. And so you say, ah, convenient. You better watch out. You better not pout. I, you better not pout. I'm telling you why, because Santa Claus is coming to town. You know, so it's just like, that, 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 that's, that's, that's what Christians are trying to do. You know, they're trying to scare us, you know, scare us into belief. But listen, don't misunderstand. The Bible takes sin seriously because the Bible takes humanity seriously. The universe is not closed and we are not mindless machines, the result of an endless succession of cause and effect, you know, predetermined to do what we do by our genetics or our social upbringing or whatever. Listen, we are not mere objects. We are not mere patients or cases. 
We're not highly evolved, predetermined bags of molecules. We are human. And as such, we bear the image of God. We have dignity. And part of the dignity of being human is that God holds us responsible for our actions. God holds us responsible for the things that we have done. But I want you to look back at our text. Paul is not writing these words to scare us, but to encourage us. Because look at what he says. He essentially says the flash drive has been erased. I mean, it's not exactly what he says, but he says something similar. Look what he says in verse 14. He says he has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He's canceled it. The flash drive has been erased. Now, most Americans, I mean, this is saying something that I, I think most Americans might misunderstand because they think, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're guilty. God's keeping track. But God is going to let us off the hook. I remember when I was 16 years old, uh, it was 11 p.m. at night, and my brother and I had been out. And uh, we were out with some friends, and they were driving in the car next to us, and we were at a red light. We were stopped there. And we started revving our engine next to our friends. We were going to race them. And uh, so we're revving our engines there, and we, we looked up, and we thought the light had turned green, and so we floored it, and we flew through the light. And the first thing that we recognized is that the light was actually red. The second thing we recognized is that the green left arrow that somebody was turning on, we almost hit this guy and killed him. The third thing we recognized, or that we realized, is that that person was a police officer. (laughs) This guy comes after us, pulls us over, and, I mean, you can imagine, he is just furious, you know? And he yanks us out of the car, you know, he gives us a breathalyzer, he yells at us, you know, and and he just, he's just so furious. And then he looks at us and he says, no, get in the car and go home. My brother and I, we get in the car and we're like, yeah, you know. We study, let us off the hook, you know. And I think, you know, your average American thinks that God is just a nice cop. You know, sure, we're guilty, but God is going to let us off the hook. But that's not what our text says. God doesn't just let us off the hook. He doesn't just overlook our record of debt. Listen, God is holy. God is holy. In his presence, the seraphim, the glorious seraphim, cover their eyes. And the angelic beings cry day and night, holy, holy, holy. In his presence, even righteous Isaiah says, I am undone. I am am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. And listen, the, the holiness of God is meaningless without judgment. The one thing God will not do in the face of all of our destructive, dehumanizing behavior and thoughts and actions, the one thing God will not do is nothing. Sin must be punished. His holiness and his justice are too strong. But his love is stronger still. And rather than inflicting a punishment upon us, God bore it in himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. 
moved by a love that was determined to do everything necessary to save, God the Son left glory to bear our shame. And in his sacrificial death on the cross, he endured and he exhausted the judgment we deserve. And look at how it describes it in our text. Look back at verse 14. It says, he canceled the record of death that stood against us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see that phrase, nailing it to the cross? I mean, surely this is one of the most arresting descriptions of the crucifixion of Christ that we have. He says, our record of debt was nailed to the cross. Now, the language that he uses here would not have been lost on his first century audience. They were familiar with crucifixion. Crosses with dying prisoners literally littered the main roads throughout the Roman Empire. And the cross wasn't just a painful death. I mean, the cross was a painful death. I mean, back lacerated, limbs wrenched out of their sockets, hands nailed to a wooden beam, feet to a vertical pole, hung in excruciating agony for sometimes days. But it just wasn't, it wasn't just a painful death, it was a shameful death. When people were crucified, they were stripped naked, utterly humiliated, publicly humiliated, and then they were hung up there naked, ridiculed by strangers passing by. But it wasn't just that it was painful and shameful. I mean, the most horrific part of the cross of Christ was that in the cross of Jesus, he bore in himself and he drank to the dregs the full cup of God-forsakenness. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Paul says, imagine, imagine this, this image of Christ They're hanging on the cross. And then he speaks to us about a record of debt that was nailed to the cross. Now, it was also common on crosses that the crimes of the accused would be posted just above the head of the crucified criminal. And you saw that this is what happened to Jesus. His own crime, supposedly, of claiming to be the king of the the Jews was posted ahead of him. But do you see what Paul is doing? He is saying the crimes for which Christ was crucified was posted there on the cross. It was nailed to the cross. And whose crimes, whose record of debt was nailed to the cross? It was yours and it was mine. Christ is the innocent sufferer. He's hanging there, and yet he is dying in our place and for our sakes. He is suffering for our sin. The record that stands against him is ours. It is my sin that he is suffering and dying for. But in our text, Paul even presses this further, because back up in verse 8, he tells us more about the identity of Jesus. He said, for in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
Now, on one level, it is the man, Jesus, who is hanging on the cross. Fully, truly human. The pain, the suffering of Jesus was real human pain and suffering. And yet Paul tells us that in the suffering, dying Jesus, you see God. God himself was pleased to dwell. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, and he is there dying in our place. And so, friends, listen. Here's how God has dealt with our sin. I mean, there's two ways of dealing with wrongs. I mean, think about this. When I was back at a church I worked at in Long Beach, my first month working at the church there was a man on staff who had an affair with uh, one of our administrative assistants at the church. And he was this man that I really looked up to, I admired. And it was just crushing to our staff. I mean, it was demoralizing to see this guy commit this heinous crime against, he had just this lovely, wonderful wife. And months after the event, she had a choice to make. She had been betrayed. She had been wronged. And she could do one of two things. She could make him pay for what he had done. Or she could absorb in herself the wrong that he had done and move toward him with forgiveness. Reconciliation is impossible unless someone bears the pain and move towards the other. And do you see the wonder of wonders? I mean, you've seen it before, but see it afresh tonight. The creator of all things was in Christ. It was God in Christ who was bearing in himself our wrongs against him and all of the punishment and the judgment that they deserve. And he has endured and he has exhausted all of his own just judgment against our sin. It is the judge who steps down and experiences the judgment for us, the accused, so that we can go free. So that we can go free. It is God himself, God and no other, who has dealt with your record of wrong. He has dealt with it by taking it upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it like this. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or as that great hymn says, bearing sinners, scoffers rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a savior. Friends, this is good news, amen? What I want to do now as as we kind of move towards closing is I want to ask you to reflect upon 
whether or not and to what degree this good news is actually beginning to work itself down inside of you. You know, Paul says at the very head of this passage in chapter 2, verse 6, he says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, grounded in him, built up in him. And then what does he do right after that? He moves to the cross. Why? He's saying, look, I want you to be grounded and rooted and draw your life from the cross. So I want to ask you, are you doing that? Are you? You say, well, how would I know? Well, let me just bring to you three diagnostic questions. Paul is teaching us in this text that God has dealt with our record in the cross. And so let me ask you three questions about your own record. Think about your record of wrong. So think with me for a minute about all of the depressing, ugly, nasty things that you do and that you find in your own heart. Are you there? Are you calling it to mind? You're like, why did we invite this guy to have us call these things to mind? It's depressing. So let me ask you three diagnostic questions to help you reflect upon how much and to what degree this good news is working down into your soul. Question number one. How much energy do you expend each week trying to defend your record of wrong? It's been a long day. I was embarrassed in a meeting at work. I'm stressed at work. The kids have been up way too late. I didn't get enough sleep the night before. And uh, the kids are getting a little wily. And as I walk in their room, I am already angry. Have you been there? And normally, you know, we read a little scripture, give them a blessing, pray with them. But tonight it's get in bed now. Lights out. No talking. (laughs) And, you know, I walk into the bedroom. My wife is in bed reading just Are you going to keep reading or what? It's time for bed. She can feel it. She looks up. You know, you were really harsh with the girls, and I don't think that that's helpful. Well, I don't think that comment's helpful. What do I do? I start defending myself. Look, you don't know what kind of day I have had. I am perfectly justified in feeling the way I do. Or I blame. Well, this is your, if you had the dinner ready earlier, we wouldn't be in this place anyway. This is your fault. What am I doing? I am defending, I am evading my own record of wrong. You know, one of the ways you can know that your repentance has gone really deep and that your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ is really vibrant, is this. Do you receive criticism with a humble ease? Are you with me on that? Do you receive criticism with a humble ease? Don't you see, the first truth you learned when you became a Christian is that you're a sinner, And, you know, we all have a good, it's easy to acknowledge that we're sinners in general. It's just when somebody points out the particular sins in our life that we have a problem, right? 
And so what do we do? We start to deal with our, our debt, our record of debt, all of our wrongs in different ways. And God says, look, I have dealt with your record of debt. Rest in that and let that rest give you the strength you need to look at yourself as you are and to be humble and to receive criticism and to respond to others well. You don't need to be so defensive. So how much energy do you spend each week? How much energy did you spend today trying to defend your record of wrong? Don't you understand when you're doing that? You're not really believing the gospel. Second question. Do you keep records of wrongs? You know, someone wrongs you. Do you write that down and store it away? You know, do you stockpile the wrongs that others have committed against you, waiting for a moment when it's convenient where you can draw upon that storehouse and wage warfare? Are you with me? Have you been there? Listen, Paul's going to say a little bit later, you know, he says in our text, God has forgiven us. He says in chapter 3, as Christ has forgiven you, now you go forgive other people. Listen, one of the ways, one of the key indicators that the, forgive, that the forgiveness of Christ that we sing about so joyfully on Sunday and that we hear preached about and that we read in the scriptures about, one of the indicators that that good news has gone down deep and that we are really experiencing the forgiveness and grace of Christ on a daily basis in our own life is that we freely dispense and share that grace and forgiveness out with others. Listen, how dare you How dare you continue to keep records of everyone's wrongs from last year and 10 years ago and to bring those things up? Don't you know Christ has come to deal with those records of wrong? And that he has forgiven your brothers and sisters? What right do we have withholding that kind of forgiveness? So do you keep a record of wrong? Third diagnostic question. Does your record of wrong make you feel depressed? I remember years ago, I was going through uh, a, a small group, and we were studying through this, uh, this workbook called Gospel Transformation. And uh, there was a quote in there by this uh, well-known pastor named Jack Miller. And uh, I loved it. It stuck in my head. Maybe it'll stick in your head. He said, look, he said, cheer up. You are worse than you think. But you are more loved than you could ever dare hope. God in Christ has come after you, and He has taken your sin upon Himself, and He's bore it and He's brought it to an end. And some of you walk around always depressed about your record. Now, look, I, I know there are some of you in this room tonight who you are completely out of touch with reality. And you actually don't pay enough attention to your record of wrong. We wish you would pay more attention to it, okay? Um, would you point the person out that you're thinking of right now? But there are others in here. I know you beat yourself up. 
and you're constantly walking around feeling like you're never measuring up. And part of that comes out sometimes of a high ideal. You have a high sense of the call of God on your life in Christ Jesus. You know what God is calling you to do. You read the Sermon on the Mount and you think, who does this? I don't, you know. And you just kind of walk around feeling this way. And look, on one level, it's probably all right sometimes. I mean, we're called to pursue holiness. And so it's probably okay to kick ourselves. I mean, Ryan, is it okay to kick yourself every once in a while to a certain degree? Yeah, okay, pastor. Thank you. Um, But listen, what is it that will actually create the kind of holiness in your life? It is gospel joy. It is gospel. It is when this news that we're reading about in this simple little text tonight, when it gets down in your heart, it creates gospel joy. You know, um, my daughters are learning how to play piano, and uh, the other day I was watching, my wife practices with, the, you know, she has the girls do their little piano lesson, um, you know, it's like 30 minutes a day with each kid or whatever, and uh, one of my daughters was there, you know, kind of hammering away on the piano, and um, she just had this scowl on her face, and she was so upset with herself because she wasn't able to play the piece the way she wanted to, and my wife looked at her, she said, honey, um, you will never play the piece the way you want to with that scowl on your face. Smile. You know, relax. It's all right. And out of that, you know, you'll be able to play this piece. There's a sense in which that's true in the Christian life. It is those who are resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, who are finding joy, regular joy and gratitude to God for his amazing grace to people who are such a mess like us. It is when you are resting in that and when you're, that, that stuff is just bubbling up in your heart and in your life that it actually fuels obedience, joyful obedience, the kind that honors God. So does your record make you feel depressed? Now, in just a minute, we're going to close. And it's my prayer that as we move into the next segment of our service, as we continue on in singing, and as we share together at the table, that the Spirit of God will be present among us in a very real way to take these tangible, physical elements that speak to us about the very tangible, physical, earthy death of Christ on the cross on our behalf. That as we take these elements in, that the Spirit of God would be present among us to confirm in our hearts that we belong to Christ, that he has rescued us. Our record of debt has been canceled It has been canceled. That record that stood against us with all its legal demands, it has been set aside. He has nailed it to the cross. And that is very good news. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we stand before you tonight as your people whom you have set your love on before the foundation of the world. And you have sent your son to purchase us for yourself. 
and you have dealt with our sin and with our shame. You have brought it to an end in the death of your son, Jesus. And I pray, O oh God, that even as we continue on in our service, that you would be present among us by your spirit to cause in our hearts, to cause our hearts to sense and to know in the depths of our being that our sin has been dealt with, that you love us, that you have rescued us. And may we go out this week walking with you in joy and love and obedience. And we ask all these things in the name of the crucified and risen Jesus who has come after us. Amen. We'll stand and respond.